Good morning, Natato. Uh, good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Climate Change Virtual Field Trip. I'm Andrew, the Learns Field Trip teacher, and it's uh, a little after 9.15 on Wednesday, the 18th of March. Um, this is our second field trip web conference and uh, will be our final one for this week. Uh, given the reduction in uh, class uptake here for this field trip, uh, we're going to postpone the remainder of the field trip, which will probably take part at some point next term. Um, and we will let you know uh, very soon how that will eventually play out but there is still um, heaps of material on the website for you to look at and videos from yesterday are up on the videos page as well as my diary from yesterday for you to have a look at um, i'd like to introduce you this morning to Dwayne. Dwayne wilkins from land information new zealand and Dwayne is our e expert answering questions this morning i've unmuted it carry on carry on so, um, Dwayne, would you like to introduce yourself? Would you like to introduce yourself, Dwayne, and tell a little bit about your role and the sorts of questions that um, students can ask you this morning? Good morning, Akoto. Hey, if you guys can leave your, uh, if you can keep your videos muted, it, it's hard to. Uh, the talk and the sounds coming through. So yeah, I'm Dwayne Wilkins. I work for Land Information New Zealand, and I've been working with uh, Andrew on a number of field trips over the last few years, and others, and Shelley. So my role at um, at Linz, and it's a government agency that does mapping, and. Um, Oh, guys, it's quite hard to, um, to think when you unmute it. So, this one here, need to keep yourself muted, please. Thanks. So, um, yeah, I work with a lot of government agencies and we do all kinds of um, mapping related activities. So, my main job. Uh, for most of the year is helping other organizations use mapping tools, things like satellites, GPS that you'll all be familiar with with your cell phones. Um, and so my, my specialty is geographic information systems, which we use to create maps and use to support all kinds of um, mapping related um, tools, almost anything you can think of um, that uses a map, uh, that's the kind of work that, that I'm into. Um, and on the field trip, so um, the types of questions you can ask me on the field trip is anything to do with satellites, the um, materials on the, the LEARNS website there. I worked with Andrew to create those story maps. So you'll find an, a huge number of interactive maps in those uh, stories. Um, but yeah, anything to do with how the data is collected. Um, and you will have seen uh, quite a few maps of CO2, um, carbon monoxide, nitrous um, oxide, and a whole bunch of others uh, on the LEARNS website. So I can uh, 
talk to you about how that data is captured as well. So, um, Dwayne, yeah, Dwayne did most of those background pages. So he's uh, he's done a really fantastic job putting those together. So whilst he does know a lot about the topic of climate change, uh, his specialty is looking at the, the mapping related to climate change. So um, what you need to do is look at the chat button uh, icon down the bottom of the screen on the web conference screen. And if you click on that, you'll see a little chat pod come up and that's where you can post your questions. So Barry's going to get us underway with a question to, is an, an example of the type of question that Dwayne uh, has expertise in and with which he can answer this morning. Thanks, Barry. Thanks. So I have got some others, but one to get us started. Because of the coronavirus, which has slowed down the world's economy, the fewer cars on the road, there are fewer people working in factories, world production is dropping. So yep. what can you see from satellites that's changing uh, daily or weekly at the moment because of the coronavirus? Yeah, so um, that's a really good question. Thanks, Barry. Um, if you have a look later on the LEARNS website, um, on the background readings, just down the very bottom of the readings, you'll find a, uh, an introduction to a, a tool called uh, earth.nullschool.net. It's kind of an unusual name, but it's a fantastic way to visualize what's happening in the world today. It's almost live. That means it's almost real time. Um, that means it's about three hours old, the data that you're looking at. So it's as, thanks Barry, that's the one. It's as close to real-time satellite feeds for climate change data as we can get. Now, the other thing to remember is with looking at these globes, they are showing you the, um, the live data. So uh, one of the story maps there talks about the difference between weather and climate, which of course weather is is constant, it's current, and climate occurs over a much longer period of time. But there are a few ways that those satellite um, signals are used in that tool. One of them is radio waves. So radio waves is used for um, measuring things like the level of uh, moisture in the atmosphere, um, also the level of pollution. So you will know in countries like India and China, um, countries that don't have as strict environmental um, rules and regulations as New Zealand, quite often that, um, that pollution can be quite toxic. And it's also, it's particulates. There are, there are floating tiny, tiny pieces of dust, carbon, soot, and other things in the air. And using radio waves, we can measure how much there is. If you have a look at nullschool.net, um, for example, in areas like China, and you go in the advanced tab, which is down the bottom left, or if you scroll through the story map as well, you'll be able to have a look and compare the current, uh, what's called sulfur dioxide output from China today, compared to, say, um, a month ago, and compared to, say, three or four months before and you'll find there's a huge dip um, during the coronavirus when they've closed the factories for a couple of months 
And this um, this impact is going to be worldwide at the moment over the next uh, next month or two. So it'll be quite interesting to see um, the impact there in places like uh, Italy, Spain, France, Germany, the UK, which have vastly greater populations than New Zealand. You'll be able to see the difference it makes in those cities. You'll be able to compare um, real data and have a look at it, just the same as any climate scientist would. It was interesting talking with um, Professor Dave Frame yesterday, though, because I, because he said that, you know, the the carbon dioxide come from, coming from the exhaust of a car, yeah, it stays it actually stays up in the atmosphere for for hundreds of years, and so yes, um, even though there's this sudden <laughs> break in the amount of emissions that have been put out into our atmosphere. It's it's still going to it's not really going to have any great effect. Um, well, that effect won't be seen for quite some time because right. because of those emissions that are still still up there at the moment. So and that's yeah. also why I said it was so important that we you know we work to act as soon as possible to stop emissions to give to give the atmosphere time to level itself back out. That's right. Um, thanks, Barry. So, um, he's got another question. What different views of the world can satellites show or measure infrared temperature and what else? So there's heaps of things, isn't there, Dwayne, that, that we can see um, happening on the planet and in the atmosphere from the satellites. Quite incredible yes. the amount of information we can get from them. Yep. There's, there are a couple of really neat ones um, in those story maps on the LEARNS website. Um, one of them, for example, is a real-time um, half of a planet selfie that's only 10 minutes old. So in the time that we have been on this web conference, um, a Japanese satellite called the Himawari uh, satellite, it's taken several photos uh, over the last how long we've been on the last half an hour. It's taken three photos that you can access. And that's really neat to be able to look at the difference between the weather you're seeing outside and the weather, um, uh, what the weather, what the satellite is showing. And you can see when clouds are coming and sort of make your own predictions about um, uh, um, what's happening in the world around you in real time. Some of the other types of views you can see, um, so they take visible images. They'll take photos just as we see it. Um, they'll also use radio waves, um, um, which are, are kind of like a type of um, Wi-Fi signal, bouncing those signals off the clouds and receiving those signals. And then scientists can interpret what that uh, shows us. But a lot of the weather, uh, weather satellites use radio waves. Um, then there's also things like infrared, and uh, a, a really neat way to understand this concept of infrared light, which humans can only see a small amount of the visible light, or we can only see the visible light spectrum. But beyond that, there is a, there is a lot more light. One of those is ultraviolet, and you will all be familiar with ultraviolet light because that's what burns you in summer coming from the sun. Um, the other one is infrared, and infrared is heat. Um, it's a type of light 
that's just beyond what we can see. A lot of insects can see it. If you take a cell phone and you take your TV remote or the remote for a projector, turn the video part of your camera on and then press some buttons on the remote, you'll see the, um, the little transmitter at the end of the remote. It's sending infrared light. So we can't see it with our eyes, but it's there. And satellites can use it to detect changes in uh, vegetation, um, the thickness of the atmosphere, so things like water, but in terms of um, the Amazon, mapping uh, vegetation change in the Amazon, for example, and even New Zealand forests, taking um, a whole sequence of photos and then comparing those photos in infrared, invisible, and um, using radio as well, we can get a, a good picture of what's happening. And tools like that, nullschool.net, they can take live feeds and interpret those radio waves into more interesting visualizations of what's happening in real time. Um, but scientists also use a series of um, uh, satellite images over time. And one of the most famous ones is called Landsat. And Landsat, um, there are actually several Landsat satellites. It's out there taking photographs, um, capturing the ultraviolet, the visible spectrum, as well as the infrared, and we can look at change over time in terms of forests, um, deforestation or afforestation or growing of forests, um, which are a key carbon um, sink. So satellites are a really important part of a climate scientist toolkit for measurement. Cool. It's hard to know um, how... <laughs> How they really? Well, I guess I guess with the with the with so many satellites there now, it's we're just so better informed about what is happening with the planet, and it's providing that evidence uh, to show um, how how carbon dioxide emissions are impacting the planet. Because the, what are what are yeah. some of the things that we we've seen? In particular, that that indicate that you know the climate change is is a real thing, um, and over what time have we been able to see those changes since since satellites have been going into space? So there's um, that Landsat satellite that I mentioned. Um, is it, it captures mostly the visible spectrum, but also some infrared and ultraviolet. It's been, a, we're onto about the eighth Landsat satellite. It's been up there for 40 years. So uh, I think the first images were taken in the early 1980s. And um, the easiest way to, uh, to see that, uh, see those, those images, um, there's Google Earth, um, desktop if you've got a, a pc or a mac you can install google earth desktop and you can actually go back in time and what google have done is they've taken millions of images and created a one-year snapshot from the best of those images for each year um, over the last three or four years the number of satellites in orbit has rapidly increased on a scale that's kind of uh, hard to, to comprehend exactly how many new satellites are going up there, but there are thousands of new ones every year. And a good example is uh, 
you might have heard of Elon Musk, who runs um, SpaceX. No. Tesla. He does Tesla. But anyway, Elon Musk, he's putting up a heap of new satellites um, almost every week, and he'll end up with a constellation of 40,000 mini satellites. They're only about size of a shoebox, but they're, for example, going to be able to both measure uh, changes in the climate and provide that information, as well as providing Wi-Fi um, across the whole planet. So that's going to be really interesting. One of the flip sides to satellites is if you go out at night, about seven or eight o'clock at night or an hour or so after sunset, you can actually see these satellites. And there are a bunch of websites that you can use. Um, the one that I use is called Heavens Above. And it lets you go outside and see um, a satellite um, about an hour after sunset. And you can actually see the International Space Station going over. Um, it goes over quite regularly because it goes around the world once every 90 minutes. And a lot of the photos that those guys are taking up there are used by climate scientists as well to help get a better understanding of what's happening. Thank you, Brian. Thanks, Brian. Uh, so a question from Marilyn Jones. Can you measure the hole in the ozone layer and has it changed over New Zealand? Yes, you can measure um, the hole in the ozone layer and it has changed. Um, they also use um, satellite, um, they use radio signals or um, radar, um, just like kind of like a, a Wi-Fi type signal. Um, they, they point this um, transmitter. That, so the satellite, to start with, is going uh, in a what's called a polar orbit. So if you take a uh, basketball, you've got the North Pole and the South Pole, the satellite's going in what's called a polar orbit, and that's really um, different to most satellites, which um, kind of go in a, a sideways orbit. The radio waves that that satellite receives and transmits and receives, they can use a very particular frequency to measure the exact amount of ozone in the atmosphere. And over time, of course, in the 1980s, when I was your age, there was a massive hole uh, in the ozone, and that was caused by a, a particular chemical that humans were releasing through things like it was used in fridges and air conditioning. Um, they can measure as governments came together and um, made laws against using this particular chemical. We can use that satellite data to see the ozone uh, hole closing or becoming less, um, less thin in some areas. And of course, um, we can, us as individuals, know that when you go outside in summer, when the, um, the sun is nearest to us, ozone is a key thing because it's, it blocks that um, ultraviolet radiation. And without ozone, of course, we all get sunburned in just a matter of minutes. So there's a real tangible thing that um, is important to each of us, and particularly in New Zealand, because over the Antarctic, that's where the ozone is thinnest. And the reason for that is because of the, the a huge amount of ice through the Antarctic, and it, it's um, um, with summer, winter, a lot of those um, ozone-damaging chemicals get released as the ice melts. So the ozone actually grows and shrinks 
throughout the year, but we can use those satellites to measure exactly what's happening. And we can see that we're well on track, but it's still going to be many, many decades until that ozone, which is actually created by the sun, um, hitting the atmosphere until it grows back and, and completely covers the atmosphere again. Well, and there's a couple of questions here about um, coronavirus, the big topic at the moment. Yes. And uh, its potential effect on the environment. We, we sort of touched on it before in terms of how we're seeing countries in lockdown, as it were, which, mean, which is meaning less vehicles on the road and also the reduced um, capacity for airlines to be flying at the moment. We are, we are seeing via satellite imagery a reduction in air pollution, aren't we? Very much so. Um, in, in places like China, particularly, where you've got a lot of industry, um, and these are big, big, uh, when I say industry, I mean big, big factories that, that are really hard for us to actually comprehend the scale of. But they have, um, uh, in New Zealand, most of our industry is powered by electricity. Um, in China, a lot of those big factories that make things like uh, steel, uh, for ships, and if you can imagine the size of a ship and the amount of steel that's needed to generate the heat to melt the iron sand, the yeah, you know, the black sand that's that's raw, raw um, iron for steel that's used to make ships. They use coal to burn um, to one to generate electricity, but also to melt the steel that's used in that industry. So with coronavirus, and particularly with China, they've said, okay, everybody stay home for, um, initially they started with a month, and so all those factories closed. So no, the factories aren't burning as much coal and the electricity isn't required for the other factories, so they don't have to burn as much coal, which of course a lot of it comes from places like Australia. Um, coal which is, you know, you, you, I'm sure you will have all seen coal, you know, when you pick it up, it's, it's black, it's carbony, which is made from um, millions of years ago from algae. So it kind of looks a bit like um, uh, when you leave a dish of water outside and it goes green. If you imagine that on a massive scale, like enormous, vast areas of green algae type stuff. So burning the carbon that that, uh, algae, which is then turned into coal and releasing it, there is another chemical in the in the um, in the coal that's also released. So as well as the carbon turns into carbon dioxide, you've also got sulphur, um, which is kind of like a rotten egg, or uh, if you've been to Rotorua, um, the sulphur in the air. So when they burn coal, that sulphur dioxide is also a pollutant, and that's one of the most fascinating things to see in real time on earth.nullschool.net because if you have a look at New Zealand you can see we're actually pretty pretty clean we don't burn that much coal in the winter we might but if you turn the globe around to um, places like Europe China America where a lot of and particularly in America a lot of their, their uh, power stations are run by coal-fired um, uh, they, they burn the coal, it heats water, the steam turns a turbine, and then the turbine is connected to a generator, which creates electricity for people to use to heat their homes and things. So when you're not burning coal, you're not releasing as much sulfur. 
And with satellites, we can measure the amount of sulfur in the air because it reflects a certain type of radio wave. If we beam radar uh, from a satellite at the Earth, see what comes back to the satellite, and then look at um, you know, the result, we can see very, very clearly that there is vastly less sulfur in the atmosphere this year compared to last year at any point in time. But as soon as a factory starts up, there's a lot more sulfur in the air. So we can imagine that will return to normal probably in China in the next month or so. In, <coughs> excuse me, in America, you'll be able to see with the, the impact that it's having there, a lot of their coal-fired power stations for steel works and, and car manufacture, um, they'll be gearing down over the next month. But you'll see them come back up again in May, um, May June as, as well. So it's a temporary reprieve, but it also shows you that um, when we really want to, we can reduce the amount of pollution that we're putting into the atmosphere. Yeah, and we discussed with Professor Dave Frame, and you'll be able to see the video that um, we discussed in that video. You know, I asked Dave, I said, "Well, why can't we just stop burning fossil fuels?" And it's a, it's an easy question, but it's very difficult to answer. So have a look at that video because Dave explains why why we why we still need fossil fuels, um, and it's essentially because of the way things work in the world and we rely on it and it's going to take some time before we can replace that energy with something else okay so there's a good one there andrew about the ozone layer how can we help the ozone layer to completely cover the earth what can we do I think there's um, that one is is a good example of um, that governments can come together to solve a problem, um, and at this point in time, uh, us as individuals, there's not a lot that uh, we need to do in terms of the ozone, as far as I'm aware, because governments came together, they banned uh, the carbon, the chloro, chloro, fluorocarbons or the CFCs. Um, they pretty much ban them all together except for very exceptional circumstances where they're, they're absolutely needed. And I'm not sure exactly what they, they are, but I know there are a couple of circumstances. But things like uh, the sources that you used to uh, use them are um, uh, fridges at home. Uh, if, you, if, you, if you've ever seen the back of the fridge, there's a little tank. And in that little tank, um, they use, now I think they use hydrocarbons. It's a different type of, of gas. Um, but those CFCs used to be the gas that they use in the fridges or in, in other things. So aerosol. the only thing, yeah, the aerosol as well. Um, the only thing we need to be really careful of now is if you are disposing of an old fridge, there's a very uh, special way that they need to do that at the um, landfill. So if, you get, if you've ever been through a refuse transfer station, you'll see a, a whole separate section where people put fridges and freezers. And there's a very special process that they go through to extract that gas out of the fridges, out of the machinery, without letting it get uh, out into the atmosphere. Hey, Dwayne, there's an interesting question here. Um, the, um, the, well, firstly, the one about 
if half the human population just disappeared, what would happen? Dwayne's asking, answering questions to do with mapping, so um, we, he, he can't be, he can't sit here and uh, answer questions hypothetically about um, population reduction. But the, I'm interested in this question, and you can probably help us with this one. How do we know what greenhouse gas and temperature levels were in the distant past? Because you know we've talked about satellites being around really only recently to offer us information about what's happening on the planet. But how do we know? How do we know that um, there's been these changes over you know the last hundreds of years, or even thousands of years? Yeah. That's a really good question, actually. So the, the key thing, and, and I did a little bit of this when I was at university, is um, using things like ice cores. So if you've ever, um, uh, if you go on YouTube and you look for Antarctic ice cores, so Antarctica, of course, is um, comprised of, of snow which turns to ice so as the snow falls over millions of years it doesn't actually go anywhere it just keeps coming down and so the antarctic ice um or the overburden that's about two or three or, or even more kilometers thick and so what we can do is we can drill down into that uh, column of snow and ice and the air that is trapped with that snow and ice it doesn't go anywhere it can't escape and so what we can do is um we can take those wee bubbles of ice and we can map out um, uh, the same time period because we can use things to, as reference layers. So they have something called carbon dating, which um, I'm not 100% familiar with, but you can work out approximate uh, dates um, over the last um, few thousand years. You can then tie that up with different readings from different um, ice core drilling um, exercises around the world. You can also take into account things like um, uh, the sediment in swamps and, and lakes, and many of New Zealand's lakes are thousands of years old. So we can drill down through those um, uh, lake sediments, and we can use things like, um, uh, I'll give you an example. There's a really easy one to spot, and you can see this in many sedimentary layers 65 million years ago when there were dinosaurs there was something that happened and i'm sure that many of you will know there was something happened that stopped most of the dinosaurs and probably something like 99 percent of life on earth there was an enormous asteroid that hit the earth and um i can't remember exactly where it hit. i think it's the gulf of mexico in south of america and so that threw up an enormous amount of ash. Um, it also covered the earth in, in dust and um, you know, pretty much most vegetation died off for a couple of years. But that layer of ash, you can actually see it in uh, almost all ice samples that go through that period. Um, you can see the impact of it and you can also see the change in the atmospheric gases. So before that, um, you know, where there were dinosaurs and, and trees and things growing happily, that event happened. And then afterwards, there was a massive change in the, uh, the ecology of the planet. And so we can map that out all over the world. It's sort of a one constant um, point in time that we can reference in our mapping and in archaeology. And, and it ties into all kinds of different fields 
as well. But that's that's a really um, useful way to know that with certainty, 65 million years ago, that happened. And then ever since then, there were key things like volcanoes um, from Indonesia um, and things like Lake Taupo uh, that the, the sound from Lake Taupo um, rolled around the earth twice. So things, people like Romans and Chinese emperors, they wrote it down that they heard this enormous bang. And so we can use reference things like that as well as carbon dating to work out um, what layer we're testing over time and have pretty good, um, a pretty good understanding of, of what's happened around the world at different times and pull that all together to create those graphs where we haven't had people or satellite imagery. Yes, some very clever science going on. So yeah, those layers and ice cores, the layers and cores taken from swamps are like layers of time, the trap, the air. And so scientists, just like they're using uh, machinery to, to measure what's in our ear today, they can take that ear from thousands of years ago and measure what's in it and then compare it with today and then show that change over time. Um, so we're going to leave things there. Uh, time's getting on and um, that's been a heap of information for you to take in this morning. So thanks very much, Dwayne. As you can see, Dwayne's at home and I'm in my hotel unit. So I'll just, uh, once again, our filming, the rest of the filming for this field trip has, has been postponed and we'll keep you updated with uh, when it's going to happen again. So the field trip will, is essentially being postponed but like i said there's still material on the website for you to go and have a look at heaps of stuff on the background pages the videos from today uh, or from yesterday are online as well but thanks for joining us uh this morning everybody um and uh yeah we're going to see you on the field trip at another time but um until then uh barry will unmute you and you can all say kakite anō thanks everybody I'm going to unmute everybody now. Big goodbye. Loud as you can. Bye. 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 Bye.